Section 5 of History of Modern Philosophy by Alfred William Benn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2. The Metaphysicians. Part 2. Malbranche. Pascal, we are told, could not forgive Descartes for limiting God's action on the world to the initial Philip, by which the process of evolution was started. Nevertheless, Pascal's friends, the Jansenists, were content to adopt Cartesianism as their religious philosophy. And his epigram certainly does not apply to the next distinguished Cartesian, Arnold Jules 1625-1669 a Fleming of Antwerp. Unfortunate in his life, this eminent teacher has of all original thinkers received the least credit for his services to metaphysics from posterity, being, outside a small circle of students, still utterly unknown to fame. Jules is the author of a theory called occasionalism. Descartes had represented mind, which he identified with thought, and matter, which he identified with extension, as two antithetical substances with not a note in common. Nevertheless, he supposed that communications between them took place through a part of the brain called the pineal body. Jelenks cut through even this narrow isthmus, denying the possibility of any machinery for transmitting sensible images from the material world to our consciousness or volitions from the mind to the limbs. How, then, were the facts to be explained? According to him, by the intervention of God. When the so-called organs of sense are acted on by vibrations from the external world, or when a particular movement is willed by the mind, the corresponding mental and material modifications are miraculously produced by the exercise of his omnipotence, and it is because these events occur on occasion of signals of which they are not the effects but the consequence that the theory has received the name of occasionalism. The theory, as Jelenks formulated it, seems at first sight to be simply grotesque, and from a religious point of view, it has the additional drawback of making God the immediate executor of every crime committed by man. Nevertheless, it is merely the logical application of a principle subsequently admitted by profound thinkers of the most opposing schools, namely, that consciousness cannot produce or transmit energy combined with the belief in a God who does not exist for nothing. Even past the middle of the 19th century, many English and French naturalists were persuaded that animal species to the number of 300,000, represented as many distinct creative acts. And at least one astronomer, who was also a philosopher, declared that the ultimate atoms of matter, running up to an immeasurably higher figure, bore the stamp of the manufactured article. The capture of Cartesianism by theology was completed by Nicolas Malbranche, 1638-1715. This accomplished writer and thinker, dedicated by physical infirmity to a contemplative life, entered the oratory at an early age and remained in it until his death. Coming across a copy of Descartes' Treatise on Man at 26, he at once became a convert to the new philosophy 
and devoted the next ten years to its exclusive study. At the end of that period he published his masterpiece on the investigation of truth, De la Recherche de la Vérité, 1674, which at once won him an enormous reputation. It was followed by other works of less importance. The legend that Malbranche's end was hastened by an argument with Barclay has been disproved. Without acknowledging the obligation, Malbranche accepts the conclusions of Jules to the extent of denying the possibility of any communication between mind and matter. Indeed, he goes further and denies that one portion of matter can act on another. But his real advance on occasionalism lies in the question, how then can we know the laws of the material universe or even that there is such a thing as matter at all. Once more God intervenes to solve the difficulty, but after a fashion much less crude than the miraculous apparatus of Jurlanx. Introspection assures us that we are thinking things, and that our minds are stored with ideas, including the idea of God, the all-perfect being, the idea of extension, with all the mathematical and physical truths logically deducible therefrom. We do not make this idea. Therefore, it comes from God, was in God's mind before it was in ours. Following Plotinus, Malbranche calls this idea intelligible extension. It is the archetype of our material world. The same is true of all other clear and distinct ideas. They are, as Platonism teaches, of divine origin. But is it necessary to suppose that the ideal contents of each separate soul are placed in it at birth by the Creator? Surely the law of parsimony forbids. It is a simpler and easier explanation to suppose that the divine archetypal ideas alone exists, and that we apprehend them by a mystical communion with a divine consciousness that, in short, we see all things in God. And in order to make this vision possible, we must, as the Apostle says, live, move, and have our being in God. As a mathematician would say, God must be the locus, the place of souls. There is unquestionably something grandiose about this theory, which, however, has the defect in orthodox opinion of logically leading to the pantheism held in abhorrence by Malbranche, of his greater contemporary Spinoza. And it is a suggestive circumstance that the very similar philosophy of the eternal consciousness held by our countryman T. H. Green has been shown by the criticism of Henry Sidgwick to exclude the personality of God. Spinoza With the philosopher whom I have just named, we come for the first time in modern history to a figure recalling in its sustained equality of intellectual and moral excellence the most heroic figures of Hellenic thought. Giordano Bruno we may indeed pronounce, like Lucan or Cranmer, by his death approved, but his submission at Venice has to be set against his martyrdom at Rome, and if there is nothing very censurable in his career as a wandering teacher, there is also nothing worthy of any particular respect. Differences of environment and heredity may no doubt be invoked to account for the difference of character, and in the philosophy about to be considered, 
the determining influence of such causes for the first time finds due recognition. But on the same principle our ethical judgments also are determined by the very constitution of things. Baruch de Spinoza, 1632-1677, born at Amsterdam, belonged to a family of Portuguese Jews exiled on account of their Hebrew faith, in which also he was brought up. Soon after reaching manhood he fell away from the synagogue, preferring to share in the religious exercises of certain latitudinarian Christian sects. Spies were sent to report his conversation, which soon supplied evidence of sufficiently heterodox opinions. A sentence of formal excommunication followed, but modern research has discredited the story of an attempt to assassinate him made by an emissary of the synagogue. After successfully resisting the claim of his sister and his brother-in-law to shut out the apostate from his share of the paternal inheritance, Spinoza surrendered the disputed property, but henceforth broke off all communications with his family. Subsequently, he refused an offer of 2,000 florins, made by a wealthy friend and admirer, Simon de Vries, as also a proposal from the same friend to leave him his whole fortune, insisting that it should go to the legal heir, Simon's brother Isaac. The latter, on succeeding, wished to settle an annual pension of 500 florins on Spinoza, but the philosopher would accept no more than 300. Books were his only luxury, material wants being supplied by polishing glass lenses, an art in which he attained considerable proficiency. But it was an unhealthy occupation, and probably contributed to his death by consumption. Democracy was then and long afterwards associated with fanaticism and intolerance rather than with free thought and religion. The liberal party in Dutch politics were the aristocratic party. Spinoza sympathized with its leader, John de Witt. He wept bitter tears over the great statesman's murder, and only the urgent remonstrances of his friends, who knew what danger would be incurred by such a step, prevented him from placarding the walls of the Hague, where he then resided, with an address reproaching the infuriated people for their crime. In 1673, the enlightened ruler of the Palatinate, a brother of Descartes' Princess Elizabeth, offered Spinoza a professorship at Heidelberg, with full liberty to teach his philosophy. But the pantheistic recluse wisely refused it. Even at the present day, such teaching as his would meet with little mercy at Berlin, Cambridge, or Edinburgh. As it was, we have reason to believe that even in free Holland, only a premature death saved him from a prosecution for blasphemy, and his great work, the Ethica, could not with safety be published during his lifetime. It appeared anonymously among his posthumous works in November 1677, without the name of the true place of publication on the title page. Spinoza was for his time no less daring as a biblical critic than as a metaphysician. His celebrated Tractatus Theologico-Politicus has for its primary purpose to vindicate the freedom of scientific thought against ecclesiastical interference. And this he does by drawing a trenchant line of demarcation between the respective offices of religion and of philosophy. The business of the one is to form the character and to purify the heart, of the other to guide and inform the intellect. 
when religion undertakes to teach scientific truth, the very ends for which it exists are defeated. When theological dogmatism gains control of the churches, the worst passions are developed under its influence. Instead of becoming lowly and charitable, men become disturbers of public order, grasping intriguers, bitter and censorious persecutors. The claims of theology to dictate our intellectual beliefs are not only mischievous but totally invalid. They rest on the authority of the Bible as a revelation of God's will. But no such supernatural revelation ever was or could be given. Such violation of the order of nature as the miracles recorded in scripture history would be impossible, and the narratives recording them are discredited by the criticism which shows that various books of the Old Testament were not written by the men whose names they bear, but long after their time. As a Hebrew scholar, Spinoza discusses the Jewish scriptures in some detail, showing in particular that the Pentateuch is of a later date than Moses. His limited knowledge of Greek is offered as a reason for not handling the New Testament with equal freedom, but some contradictions are indicated as disallowing the infallibility claimed for it. At the same time, the perfection of Christ's character is fully acknowledged and accepted as a moral revelation of God. Spinoza shared to the fullest extent, and even went beyond, Descartes' ambition to reconstruct philosophy on a mathematical basis. The idea may have come to him from the French thinker, but it is actually of much older origin, being derived from Plato, the leading spirit of the Renaissance, as Aristotle had been the oracle of the later Middle Ages. Now Plato's ideal had been to construct a philosophy transcending the assumptions, or as he calls them, the hypotheses, of geometry, as much as those assumptions transcend the demonstrations of geometry. And this also was the ideal of Spinoza. Descartes had been content to accept from tradition his ultimate realities, thought, extension, and God, without showing that they must necessarily exist. For his proof of God's existence starts from an idea in the human mind, while thought and extension are not deduced at all. To appreciate the work of the Hebrew philosopher, of the lonely muser bred in the religion of Yahweh, a name traditionally interpreted as the very expression of absolute self-existence, we must conceive him as starting with a question deeper even than the Cartesian doubt, asking not how can I know what is, but why should there be anything whatever? And the answer divested of scholastic terminology is, because it is inconceivable that there should be nothing, and if there is anything, there must be everything. This universe of things, which must also be everlasting, Spinoza calls God. The philosophy or religion, for it is both, which identifies God with the totality of existence, was of long-standing in Greece, and had been elaborated in systematic detail by the Stoics. It has been known for the last two centuries under the name of pantheism, a word of Greek etymology, but not a creation of the Greeks themselves, and indeed of more modern date than Spinoza. 
Historians always speak of him as a pantheist, and there is no reason to think that he would have objected to the designation had it been current during his lifetime. But there are important points of distinction between him and those who preceded or followed him in the same speculative direction. The Stoics differed from him in being materialists. To them, reality and corporeality were convertible terms. It seems likely that Hobbes and his contemporary, the atomist Gassendi, were of the same opinion, although they did not say it in so many words. But Descartes was a strong spiritualist, and Spinoza followed the master's lead so far at any rate as to give thought at least equal reality with matter, which he also identified with extension. It has been seen what difficulties were created by the radical Cartesian antithesis between thought and extension, or to call them by their more familiar names, mind and body, when taken together with the intimate association shown by experience to obtain between them, and also how Jules and Malbranche were led on by the very spirit of philosophy itself almost to submerge the two disparate substances in the all-absorbing agency of God. The obvious course, then, for Spinoza, being unfettered by the obligations of any Christian creed, was to take the last remaining step, to resolve the dualism of thought and extension into the unity of the divine substance. In fact, the Hebrew philosopher does this, declaring boldly that thought and extension are one and the same thing, which thing is God, the only true reality of which they are merely appearances. And so far he has had many followers who strive to harmonize the opposition of what we now call subject and object in the synthesis of the all-one. But he goes beyond this, expanding the conception of God or the absolute to a degree undreamed of by any religion or philosophy formulated before or after his time. God, Spinoza tells us, is a substance consisting of infinite attributes, each of which expresses his absolute and eternal essence. But of these attributes, two alone, thought and extension, are known to us at present, so that our ignorance infinitely exceeds our knowledge of reality. His extant writings do not explain by what process he mounted to this, the most dizzy height of speculation ever attained by man. But in the absence of definite information, some guiding considerations suggest themselves as probable. Bruno, whom Spinoza is held on strong grounds to have read, identified God with the supreme unifying principle of a universe extending through infinite space. Descartes, on the other hand, conceived God as a thinking rather than as an extended substance. But his school tended, as we saw, to conceive God as mediating between mind and body in a way that suggested their real union through his power. Furthermore, the habit common to all Cartesians of regarding geometrical reasoning as the most perfect form of thought inevitably led to the conception of thought as accompanying space wherever it went, in fact, as stretching like it to infinity. Again, from the Cartesian point of view, the extension, which is the very essence of the material world, 
while it covers space, is more than mere space. It includes not only coexistence, but succession or time. That is, scientifically speaking, the eternal sequence of physical causes, or theologically speaking, the creative activity of God. And reason or thought had also since Aristotle been more or less identified with the law of universal causation, no less than with the laws of geometry. Thus, then, the ground was prepared for Spinoza as a pantheistic monist to conceive God under the two attributes of extension and thought, each in its own way disclosing his essence as no other than infinite power. But why should God have or consist of two attributes and no more? There is a good reason why we should know only those two. It is that we are ourselves modes of thought united to modes of extension, of which our thoughts are the revealing ideas. But it would be gross anthropomorphism to impose the limitations of our knowledge on the infinite being of God, manifested through those very attributes as unlimited power. The infinite of coexistence, which is space, the infinite of causal procession, which is time, suggest an infinity of unimaginable but not inconceivable attributes of which the one divine substance consists. And here at last we get the explanation of why there should be such things as thought and extension at all. They are there simply because everything is. If I grant anything, and I must at least grant myself, I grant existence, which having nothing outside itself must fill up all the possibilities of being which only exclude the self-contradictory from their domain. Thus the philosophy of Spinoza neither obliges him to believe in the monsters of mythology, nor in the miracles of scripture, nor in the dogmas of Catholic theology, nor even in free will nor again would it oblige him to reject by anticipation the marvels of modern science. For according to him, the impossibility of really incredible things could be deduced with the certainty of mathematical demonstration from the law of contradiction itself. End of section 5